coming to you from the Dietitians and Nutrition Support Dietetic Practice Group. This is the DNS Member Podcast, where we explore topics relevant to our field. From support line content to nutrition celebrity interviews and everything in between, this podcast is where DNS members can go behind the scenes and explore the driving forces behind cutting-edge nutrition support. I'm your host, Christina Rollins. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to the DNS podcast. Our guests today are Dr. Zachary Clock and registered dietitian nutritionist Stephanie Doback, here to talk with us about cultural values and religious beliefs on nutrition at the end of life. Dr. Clock is a board-certified family physician with fellowship training in hospice and palliative medicine at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He currently works as a hospice and palliative medicine physician with Samaritan in South Jersey. He enjoys helping patients and families navigate serious illness and providing care at the end of life and has published research into end-of-life care in imprisoned patients and advanced care planning in patients with ALS. Stephanie is a certified nutrition support clinician and level three clinical dietitian at the Jefferson Weinberg ALS Center in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Prior to her position at the ALS Center, Stephanie was a nutrition liaison for the palliative care team at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital. In this role, she provided insight into challenging cases involving nutrition support at the end of life. She has authored multiple publications and presented nationally on the topic of nutrition and ethics. Her current research relates to advanced care planning in patients with amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, commonly known as ALS. In her quote-unquote spare time, she also serves as the DNS DPG Executive Coordinator and has held numerous volunteer positions with our group. Stephanie, Dr. Clock, thank you so much for joining us today on the DNS Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you guys. So tell us more about cultural considerations at the end of life situation and why you chose to write on this topic for DNS support line. Yeah, it's a a great question and something I think Steph and I both feel really strongly about. Um, We worked together in Center City, Philadelphia, and had a lot of experience taking care of patients of all different cultures and religions throughout illness and various stages of life and those with terminal illness as well. And I think we've both seen firsthand how culturally aware and appropriate care can really make a huge difference in a patient's experience in their healthcare journey and really especially in their end of life care. Culture can really affect so many things about patients' care. It can affect how they receive information, what information they want to receive about their illness and prognosis. It can affect who they want involved in their decisions or discussions around their care, what they value when making really tough decisions at the end of life, how they express pain or other symptoms and how we manage those symptoms. And these are just a few of the many ways that culture can really affect someone's care. So I think we were both hoping that through writing this, we could help to provide some clinically relevant information around common cultural themes and practices that may influence patients or families' lives so that all of us as members of the healthcare team can really feel more comfortable thinking about these themes, talking about these themes, and incorporating cultural values into a patient's care especially at the end of life, which is really a a delicate and emotional time for patients when them and their families may really rely more heavily on these cultural themes. 
Um, it's sometimes a taboo subject culture and something that we may not feel comfortable talking about or asking our patients about. So we're hoping to, to give some insight into common cultural themes and really to help people to start to think about and to feel more comfortable with having these conversations, incorporating these into their healthcare plans and, and talking about it with patients and families. And in your article, you mentioned that nutrition support clinicians often feel ill-equipped when it comes to end-of-life discussions. So why do you think that is? And I'll take that one. There aren't any surveys, at least yet, which assess dietitians' attitudes and perceived barriers to providing end-of-life care. But when physicians and nurses were surveyed, many reported feeling ill-equipped for these situations and conversations. And there are multiple reasons cited by these surveys, but most fall into the categories of competence, confidence, role delineation, and time. So in terms of competence, we need to be competent in what could be done medically, what should be done ethically, and what must be done legally. And we have position papers on these topics that are helpful, yet sometimes they are difficult to apply. So for example, we want to respect autonomy, but what if a patient or family's decision based on their cultural beliefs will lead to fetal care? That's when it gets a little trickier. So that's com competence. Regarding confidence, I personally felt super intimidated and awkward at first by these conversations. Like, how do you even begin the discussion? How do you respond when patients or families recognize the gravity of their situation, but say they believe in miracles? And a lot of confidence comes with experience, but there are also articles which offer tips on what to say and not to say, which were super helpful in getting me started. Moving on to role delineation. This was another big one for me. In so many of my notes from earlier in my career, my recommendation would say something along the lines of recommend discussing goals of care with patient or recommend consulting palliative care or ethics teams. Um, I felt it was the primary team's role, particularly the physician's role to address these conversations and issues. And I will add that for whatever reason, I was never asked to join family meetings initially. But when I began asking my physicians to attend family meetings on goals of care, particularly when they came down to nutrition, like starting or stopping nutrition support, the physicians really appreciated me being there. And lastly, time, a huge limiting factor for all of us. These conversations take time and often 45 to 60 minutes. And I know dietitians are busy. You have rounds, you have patients, perhaps QI projects and research, and we're left balancing these family meetings with our other obligations. But I recommend prioritizing them, not only for the patient, but also for the rest of the medical team and for your own personal growth. I'm sure we can all agree that cultural and religious considerations are important across all stages of the patient's healthcare journey. So what makes end of life in particular so unique? I think cultural and religious backgrounds and values really significantly influence the ways that patients choose to discuss end of life care, uh, the decisions that they make at end of life care and are, are really values and, and, and things that they lean on during these really scary moments as we're talking about, about end of life and, and death. And so I think understanding these cultural values is really important when, when applying them to end of life care, understanding, 
you know, concepts like individualism or collectivism can help the medical team to make sure that they're involving the right people in serious discussions around a life-limiting illness or, or a serious decision that needs to be made. You know, it, it can help us as a healthcare team to be more empathetic when it seems like a patient doesn't want to engage in these conversations and and we're getting really frustrated by that. But for a patient, it may be taboo or bring bad luck for us to be to be talking about such serious things with an ill patient. You know, culture can really affect everything about their end of life journey. It, it affects how how people communicate pain. There are cultures that are much more open and willing to communicate pain and some that are more stoic and don't wanna be seen as a burden. And so even thinking about symptom management at the end of life is, is really affected by culture. So I think really every asset, every part of a patient's care at the end of their life is influenced by their culture, which is why it's so important to, to have that in the back of your mind as you're taking care of patients. You know. These are incredibly emotional, really scary times for patients and their families to be talking about these things. And, and I think having a healthcare team that understands and includes religious and cultural considerations can really help to alleviate a patient's suffering, especially you know emotional or existential pain and crises that they're going through and can really help them to have a better end of life experience. You know, I think, for most cultures, there are rituals and practices either throughout the dying process or, or after a patient dies that are really core and fundamental to who a person is. And so being able to respect those is a, a really important part of the, the dying and grieving process for patients and families. And so I think overall, you know, understanding and being open to cultural and religious differences really helps us as providers and the healthcare team to provide more compassionate and patient-centered care, which when we're talking about end-of-life care is really the crux of it all, to respect a patient's wishes, to care for them as an individual, and to help them to help them live and die in the way that they want. And so thinking about these issues at the end of life and, and involving them in your care plans is really how we best take care of patients who are dying. Tell us about a time when you had to navigate a particularly challenging end-of-life case. You know, when I when I reflect on challenging end-of-life discussions for myself and for other members of the healthcare team, I think one of the, the values that's really central to a lot of the, the challenges and the struggle that we feel as, as providers is related to patient autonomy. You know, in, in my culture and in the Western culture that many of us who are practicing and providing medicine are from, patient autonomy is such a fundamental pillar. It's like the medical ethics number one principle is patient autonomy. And so for us, that's so important. But in, in many other cultures around the world, patient autonomy and individualism is viewed very differently. And there's there's a more emphasis placed on collectivism, which is really you know, valuing the group and making decisions that are best for the group, whether that be the family unit or the community. And this dissonance I've seen create a lot of discomfort for members of the healthcare team who are really trying to advocate for patients and patient autonomy. <clears throat> um, you know, one case in particular that comes to mind as I think about this is uh, the case of an, an older Chinese woman who presented to the hospital with fatigue and weight loss and ultimately on imaging was found to have diffusely metastatic cancer really all throughout her body. 
she was Cantonese speaking and, and she would refuse to let us use a translator, preferring instead to call her out-of-state daughter. Um, and so during, during our conversations, I could start to tell that, that something was getting lost in translation. You know, I would speak a sentence or a couple sentences and the daughter would tell the mom a couple of words. The mom and the daughter would have, you know, their own conversation. And then the daughter would give me a couple words. And I, I could tell there was, there was something that being, was being missed. And I think other healthcare providers, bedside nurses, really everyone from the team got this same sense and really started to get worried about what the patient's understanding was, what they've been hearing, if they even knew that they had such a serious diagnosis and a, a widely metastatic cancer. And I think that created a lot of uh, internal frustration and, and discomfort for really everyone in the healthcare team. You know, we were having conversations around the role of biopsy or oncologic care and artificial nutrition. And it just seemed like the patient was not being told and not being involved in these really big discussions. Um, in, in Asian cultures in particular, this is not an uncommon theme. It's, it's called uh, filial piety, which is, is on that autonomy collectivism spectrum. And really, it's the virtue of respect for one's patients in many Asian cultures. And, and in the context of healthcare, it's kind of a, a belief that, that someone's children will take care of parents, they'll care for them as they get ill, they'll make decisions on their behalf, and they'll make the best decision for them. Um, also in Asian cultures, talking about death or serious illness with the sick individual is really viewed as, as taboo and bringing bad luck and a worse, worse prognosis to those patients. So all of these cultural factors were really in play as we were approaching her. And, and really that, that idea of, you know, virtue of respect for the parents is, is in many ways not the same as our Western values of autonomy and wanting to tell the patient everything and the patient to make their own decision. So I recognize some of these values were at play that, um, you know, there were cultural differences that were really informing her care and making the healthcare team uncomfortable. And, and I, you know, as many palliative providers do over a course of many days and just kind of stopping in to see her building a relationship, we were, I was able to get her to agree to use a translator phone. Um, and I used a translator phone not to tell her, her her diagnosis or her prognosis, but rather to explore how she views healthcare information, how she wants information communicated to her, how she wants decisions to be made. And she made it pretty clear to me that she wanted her children to make decisions for her and that she knew they would they would do what was best for her. Um, and so we we had a family meeting. I invited her children from out of state, the different members of the medical team and and we sat outside of the patient's room and talked about what was going on, her diagnosis, her prognosis, and ultimately they decided not to pursue oncologic care, artificial nutrition, and to bring her home with home hospice, um, which was a tough decision for them, but one that they were kind of making out of respect and care for their mom. And, you know, as the patient was ultimately being discharged, she seemed really content with her plan. Um, you know, I'm I'm sure while, while we didn't tell her, you know, you have cancer, you're dying from cancer, I'm sure she knew when her out-of-state children were coming to take time off of work and to be home with her that something serious was going on. But, but to her, that's how her culture informed her healthcare decision-making and, and, and how she wanted decisions to be made. And so 
while it, it may have felt different than the traditional uh, patient autonomy, I, I felt comfortable that she was still exerting patient autonomy by telling us who she wanted to make decisions and, and how she wanted to be involved in those decisions. And generally speaking, what negative outcomes have you experienced in your practice when we don't take the additional steps in care that you just described? And, you know, we, we don't look at the big picture with respect to religious or cultural considerations. Yeah, so as Zach mentioned, and as you just mentioned, religion and culture can strongly influence end-of-life decisions. And we can really miss a mark if we don't address these factors early on. From my experience, if we don't, it can lead to miscommunication, decreased rapport, distrust for the medical team, and longer and more difficult decision-making. And we had a female patient who, as part of her culture, refused to be physically examined by male physicians. And this wasn't initially communicated nor asked, so it led to delayed care in trying to coordinate a female physician for her. We've had patients who defer decision-making to religious leaders, such as priests or rabbi, and obviously it takes time to coordinate these meetings with these other important figures. And towards the end of life, time is of the essence to prevent additional suffering for all involved. So it's really important to identify key decision-makers early on. In another scenario, I had a patient who was okay with withholding nutrition support, but not with withdrawing it if it was initiated. And she arrived to the ER overnight and she was intubated and two feeding initiated as part of our ICU bundle set. And this led to a lot of confusion and hardship, which could have potentially been avoided if the patient specific desires were broached initially. And opposite to that, what have you seen happen when we get it right and we take the right approach with these patients? I think sometimes we're so quick to treat only the physical aspect of our patients. But when we address the psychological nature, the spiritual nature, really the whole person, from my experience, patients and families are more likely to feel heard. They're more likely to let down their guard to be open and honest. And as you, Christina, mentioned early on, I work with ALS. And as of now, there's no cure for ALS. Every one of my patients will die. And I've realized if I don't address their overwhelmingly devastating situation, my nutrition advice often lands on deaf ears. If I don't discuss what's most important to them given their limited time, it's really difficult to arrange nutrition goals. I had one patient recently who was peg tube dependent, but wanted to partake in religious ceremonies that involved wine. And the family wanted to know if they could put wine down the peg tube. Now, with ALS, falls are often a concern, so you don't want too much wine. And secondly, the ALS medication, Rylazole, can elevate liver enzyme levels. And so, of course, that's concerned with alcohol in the liver. And so we work together for the patient to take wine, but in a safe way to optimize her safety. And I know sometimes we get so overwhelmed with our patient loads or other responsibilities, but I want us to remember that our patients are not just patients, they're people, they're spouses, they're parents, they're children. 
And I hope we can all value how special it is to be with these individuals in the raw moments of their lives. Just put aside our white coats and meet people where they are to ensure they receive what they want and need in their final stage of life. What resources are available to help clinicians increase their own cultural competence as it relates to end-of-life care or decision-making? Uh, one resource I use all the time for myself and always recommend to learners who are with me um, who are looking for palliative resources is something called Palliative Fast Facts, which is a website and they also have an app. Um, and these are really kind of quick one to two page evidence based summaries around all sorts of different topics. They have almost 500 of them. So you can you know, peruse and find all sorts of inf information. Um, they have some around caring for Muslim patients, for example, caring for Black patients, artificial nutrition at the end of life. So they're they're a great resource for kind of reading and, and getting some, some information and data and, and part of that hard science. Um, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics also has an idea hub, um, which has a lot of great resources articles, webinars, videos, as well as member interest groups on specific topics related to diversity and inclusion. So I definitely recommend checking out those two things for some resources. Um, but I think it's also really important that that our patients are our best teachers and our best resources and, and exposure to these conversations and, and having them with other providers and with patients is really one of the best ways to increase your competence. Um, you know, don't be afraid to ask your patients about their cultural norms or values or how those things are influencing their, their health care or their decision making. I think patients actually really appreciate and accept when a, when a provider is open to asking questions and being inquisitive and, and talking with them about these things. Um, and like Steph had, had mentioned, you know, earlier waiting to be invited to family meetings and these conversations, I think you know, being involved in them and reaching out to the palliative physician or the team, whoever's having these conversations and, and coming along will really help you to feel more comfortable. The more that we, we have them and normalize them, the more comfortable that we become talking about these really sensitive topics, but things that are really most important to, to our patients. So I, I always recommend people to, to reach out and be involved and, and come along with me to these discussions. One more question, we're almost at our time, but what can dietitians in particular do to partner with physicians and other healthcare professionals to really foster effective end-of-life discussions? I think we all need to first recognize the value each interdisciplinary team member has to offer in these discussions. End-of-life care is by no means a one-person show, and we all bring different and valuable perspectives and insights. Specific to dietitians, we really need to establish ourselves as the nutrition expert and valued resource to the interdisciplinary team. We essentially need to show up. We need to attend rounds, be prepared to answer questions, actively be seen working with patients. Your physicians need to know and respect you. And once we've established a trust and rapport, we ask to get involved. Again, don't wait around to be invited to these discussions as it may never happen. So from, my advice is to humbly yet boldly approach physicians and review the case, discuss how you can be a resource for them, the physician, and helping answer nutrition-specific questions. 
my initial family meetings, again, after inviting myself, um, mostly consists of me just sitting in the room and being available for questions. That was it. Other than that, I really didn't say much of a word. (laughs) And often the patients or families asked nutrition-specific questions that were a lot easier for me to answer, and the physicians really appreciated me responding. And uh, once once you become more comfortable in these conversations and your team trusts and respects your approach with patients, you can work your way up to helping lead, or in my case, in my ALS clinic, a lot of times I lead the discussions on end-of-life and nutrition goals. And it's it's really rewarding for me. I think you make a lot of great points, Steph. And it always strikes me too that the time to build that relationship with your you know fellow healthcare professionals is not in the moment that the patient needs to have that tough decision, right? Like it happens days, weeks, months, years before. So that when you do encounter that that tough talk and, and need to have those crucial conversations, you're already all connected and on the same page. Definitely. Well, with that, we will conclude today's podcast. Um, Thank you both so much for taking time out of your schedules to talk with us today. Thanks for having us. It's a lot of fun. We really appreciate it. Yeah, great to be with you guys. Thank you for inviting me. Hopefully you learned something new. And listeners, to learn more about cultural considerations at the end of life, keep an eye out for the April 2023 edition of Support Line, which will be posted on our website at dnsdpg.org. Until next time, I'm Christina Rollins. Thanks for listening.